0: Amen. I I said it in the first hour, but I'll say it again. That song is awesome. I've never sung that one before, but I love that. Behold our God. Church, we serve an awesome God. Emphasis on the word awe, not the way we use the word awesome. We say awesome about everything. He's awesome. And The idea behind the words we just sang is Behold Him Look at Him Put Him before your eyes You want to be a stronger Christian? Look at God You want to have a greater hope? Look at God You want to more effectively live out this Christian walk? Look at God Put Him before you all the time And you will have a strength that you do not have in yourself brothers and sisters i want to be ready for the day when jesus comes and he's coming we don't know when he's coming but he's coming i want to be ready for him when he comes i don't want to be like one of those 10 virgins whose lamp had burnt out and who was not ready i don't want to be found sleeping I don't want to be found by Jesus living and walking in the ways of the world. I don't want to be found by Jesus wearing the name of Christ and living exactly the same way that I lived before I came to Christ. I want to effectively live out the Christian faith. Last week, I began a series titled A Theology That Hits the Dirt. This is practical christianity we need a theology of practice christians need to know how to do the things they're called to do it's really a worthless theology if all we do is hold ideas up in the air and have ideals and have beliefs and things we say yeah this is a good thing that's a good thing out there no idea how to do it but it sure is a good thing I made the illustration last week of a father telling his son to build a table. And sometimes that's what we do. Say, go be a Christian. It's like a dad telling his six-year-old son, build a table. Six-year-old knows what a table is. Six-year-old knows what it means to build. But there's an impasse. Building the table requires someone to show you how to do it. It's not enough to say to a Christian, look, this is really the, uh, the idea that we're to live up to. Paul says, you must consider yourselves, let me change the color here, dead to sin. Dead to it. Sin needs to be dead. You, you're dead to sin, and sin is dead to you let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body don't let it reign to make you obey its passions that's the Christian call we are earlier in Romans chapter 6 Paul says don't you know that all of us who have he, he kind of started off with the question should we continue in sin so that grace may abound because in the prior chapter he said that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. This is under the old law. And it's true that the grace of God is greater than the sin of man always. The mountain of my sin, the grace, the mountain of God's grace will always be bigger. But there's a false conclusion, and that's that, well, then I must continue in sin so grace can be even bigger. And he says, no, that's a false conclusion. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have taken on a new life, it's a new way. We don't, it's not. It's not just a spirit, it's not just spiritual terms. It's not just that we have a new name. It's not just that we have a new purpose. We are a new creation. And along with that creation, there are changes in our conduct. Namely, deadness to sin. Sin no longer is the king. I don't want sin as the king of my life. Do you? Do you? No. I want it gone. How do I kill it? That's the question. And as I'm thinking about how to practically live the Christian life, this is one of the most practical questions that can be asked. How do you kill sin? Don't just tell me to do it. Tell me how to do it. And there are things that you can do, and I'm going to give you three of them this morning, some more of them next week. And some more of them the week after that. Three weeks on how to kill sin. And I hope that you'll find this to be extremely practical. And I want to encourage you with this thought. Sin is not just something that Christians are trying to deal with. Really, the whole world is. Everyone has a conscience. Everyone. Your pagan neighbor has a conscience. Your friend who's an atheist, he has a conscience. Everyone has a conscience. God put it in them from the day they were born. Paul said this in Romans chapter 2. He said, when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness, the work of the law is written on their hearts, and their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. He's talking of pagans, and they have a conscience, and they have conflicting thoughts. They have thoughts that accuse them. The pagan who doesn't believe in God does things that even he knows I shouldn't have done that. And he feels the weight of it after the fact. And Christians, we have in our possession the singular means of dealing with the weight of that guilt. And it's called the gospel of Jesus. What a privilege we have to be the ones not only to herald to the world the solution, but to live it out practically where they can look on us and they can see it. How do I kill my sin? How do I effectively kill sin? And I have three answers for today, and like I said, there'll be more next week. The first one is, we have to hate it. Just thinking about if you're going to kill something you know if I'm going to go hunt that doesn't really require hatred it better not if you hate the animal you probably shouldn't be hunting it, it, it's, you're, it's motivated but when you're killing something in violence hatred is required this, this is not we're talking this is a violent exercise here killing sin it's not something I'm going to treat delicately. I'm not going to treat sin sweetly. I'm not going to be polite to it. I don't care to be friends with it. I don't care to reason with it. It it is a violent exercise. It it clings to me and it clings to my core. This is why the Hebrew writer said that the word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. And it reveals the inner man because sin goes that close. The Hebrew writer later said, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. It will grip to you with all of its might to drag you to the depths of hell. That is its purpose and its intention. When I know that and when I think about that I hate it. I'm not going to put to death something I love. If I fancy something if I particularly like it if I want it around if I want it in my life I don't hate it. If I don't hate it I'm not going to do what needs to be done to put it to death. My first challenge this morning is we just simply need to hate it there's a couple of scriptures that uh, make this point the fear of the Lord to fear the Lord what is it in its essence it is hatred of evil that's what it means to fear God it means to hate evil pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate don't you I hate it and I'll tell you why in just a second Psalm 97 and verse 10, O you who love the Lord. I make the same appeal to you at Oldham Lane. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Do you love the Lord or do you love the world? O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, he says, abhor what is evil. And the word he uses there is a. it's the strongest word in the Greek language for hatred. It means a vehement despising of it. It is a disgusting thing. It is something that you abhor. The Bible says that is how we should look at sin. Now, If we need to hate sin in order to kill sin, then we need to know why we need to hate sin if you don't hate sin. There are many that are saying, I I don't particularly hate it. Well, Maybe it's because we don't know what it's doing to us. Maybe because we've not seen it come to its full maturity. Maybe because we've dilly-dallied with it or we've believed lies about it. Or we think that all sin is is fun little games. Little pleasures that are in secret. Doesn't really affect my life too much. Doesn't seem to affect anyone else that I know too much. It's not that big of a deal. We deal with it like it's trite. We deal with it like it's trivial. We deal with it like it's this little playful thing. Oh, whatever. That's just what it is. We say things like, I'm just a human And that's the way that we are. That's not seeing it rightly. You have to hate it. And let me tell you what I do to hate it. Number one, to hate it, I think about where the sin road goes. I think about, and and really and truly, think about, be real enough with yourself to say, you know what, there's a sin in my life that I do in perpetuity. And I really have had no game plan, no real goal to attack it. I've gone, I haven't really done anything to go at it. It just exists. It's there. It's behind the scenes. I continue. And I have, I've just lived with it on and on and on. That's not good. And here's what you do. Maybe that means you don't hate it. But here's how you learn to hate it. Just think about where it leads. Think about the end of the sin road. If any sin is fully lived out, what does it do? Where does it go? When sin is fully conceived, what does it bring? It brings death. That's how I hate it. I don't hate it by pretending that there is no pleasure in sin and lying to myself in that way. I hate it by saying, despite the momentary pleasure, the momentary pleasure pales in comparison To the eternity that I will live if I continue in rebellion to my God. This aside the fact that the momentary pleasure of sin is nowhere near as good as the transcendent pleasure of obedience. Which I can have all the time and will give me a good night of sleep. It's aside from that fact. But I think about the end of the line. I think about if I carry on this way. If I continue in sin. If I walk in it, if I live in it, if I walk in the darkness, where will it go? I just think about my eternity all the time. And I think about it for my wife, and I think about it for my boys, and for my little girl, and my mom and dad, and my friends and my brothers and my neighbors. And I don't see sin as a playful, silly, fun thing. I see it as a thing that damns people for eternity, for eternity. That's an unimaginably long time, never-ending. And I hate it because of that. Because it takes people and it pulls wool over their eyes and it makes them to see something that they think is good, but it is not good at all, and they walk down that road all the way to an eternal demise. I hate it for that reason. I hate how crafty it is. I hate how you can be without the word and without prayer for a week and that's it and it all of a sudden sin doesn't seem quite as bad and that thing that once before was so stark is a little bit blended and I don't see it as clearly anymore. I hate it for those reasons. I hate where it goes, but I don't just hate where it goes. In 10 years of ministry, I've had the opportunity uh, which goes with the territory of this position that I have uh, taken on. I have had the opportunity to be involved in people's lives, down to the innermost parts of their lives and the things that are going on in their lives. It's not just that sin leads somewhere. It's not just that sin is a great time here on earth and everybody's fine and dandy. At the but at the end of the line, it's going to be real rough. I've seen it destroy homes I've seen it Cause a wife To go into the greatest grief She's ever felt in her life I've seen children Caught in the crossfire I've seen Sin of priority Meaning God wasn't first But other things were Things of the world That otherwise were fine Like sports or whatever I've seen them cause children to grow up and leave the church altogether with no mind for God. I've seen it break homes. I've seen it hurt people. I've seen a man who could not let go of the bottle, and it was everything to him. And it tore him up, and it destroyed his life. And this man was desperately longing for peace, and he knew he couldn't find it in the bottle, and yet he was bound to it, and he... he stayed holding on to it and it destroyed everything for him it's not just that sin goes somewhere bad it's bad now and so I hate it I hate it I hate it in my heart I hate it in my mind I have sin the deeper I get into the word the more aware I am of my sin than I ever was before I was the most confident before I really began to study. The more I study, the more I know it. And I hate sin. And so it causes me to take it very seriously and to deal with it very seriously. So what we need to do is, number two, we need to bury it. When It's really interesting to think about the natural instinct, when anybody sins, anybody, and this is, goes down to the level of a child, and I understand that sin are, children are not theologically uh, sinning, but they do bad things, they do wrong things, and it's just their accountability isn't to God yet, their accountability is to mom and dad. It's a, it's a, it's a precursor into what it will be later. But um, you see it even in little kids. When they do something bad, What is the instinct of man when they've sinned? Cover it up. Cover it up, right? Isn't that interesting? Um, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what'd they do? They covered it up. Oh, we're naked. Let's go get some fig leaves. Sew these together. Let's go hide over here behind this rock or whatever it was that they hid behind. It's covered up. When Ananias and Sapphira sinned, what they do? They lied. They covered it up by lying. I see in the world today a guilt-ridden world. A world ridden with guilt. Because they know the sins of their own minds. And how do they cover it up? Through good deeds and philanthropy. If I just do enough good things, this will cover it up. This'll undo over there what I've done over here. It's not a bad instinct to want to cover up sin. It might be surprising to you. That's not a bad instinct. It's actually a it's a really good instinct. And the reason why is sin is ugly, isn't it? It's not something I want to showcase. I'm not gonna hang sin above my mantle. I'm not gonna wear sin on my clothing. I don't want to smell of sin. I don't want to look of sin. I don't want to look at it. I want it gone. I want it out of sight. I want it covered. That's not a bad instinct. It's a good instinct to want it covered. The lie of Satan is that man, by his own devices, can cover it. Adam and Eve got themselves some fig leaves. Well, the blood of a fig tree wasn't enough to cover their sin. God came and He didn't leave them naked, did He? He gave them some clothing, and what were they from? They were from animals. What happened with those animals for them to provide a covering for Adam and Eve? Their blood was shed. Hebrews 9 and verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin does need to be covered. That's a good instinct. Don't believe the lie that a fig leaf or a lie or a good deed can do enough to cover it, because it can't. God sees right through it. We need another kind of covering altogether. Now, here's the paradox of this. I'm saying This is supposed to be practical, and you're saying, this is all theology, this means nothing to me. How do you bury it? How do you get it covered up? This is the practical part. And the paradox of it is this. The paradox is that you cover it by uncovering it first, and then it will get covered. First of all, let me show you where and how this happens all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood this is a kind of covering it's propitiation then Paul says the next chapter down this was, that was Romans 3 but in chapter 4 he says something I just want you to see the term that he uses because it really does mean this he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are, what does that say? Covered. The word means covered up. It means to lay something over the top of it. The sins are covered. They're no longer seen. That's what we want to do. Now, how do we do it? The paradox is, we get it covered by uncovering it. I want you to see this. This is 1 John 1. If we walk in the light... As he is in the light, so light is, ex- light, there's no darkness there. There's no shadows. It's, it's just exposed. It's just, this is, you are what you are. You, you are who you are. If we walk in the light as, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And what happens in the light? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin in the light. In the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In the light, I'm under the blood of Jesus. Now, what does he mean by in the light? Does it mean that that I wake up and I'm just this perfect guy? I just get out of bed, and from morning to night, I just walk perfectly. I do the walk perfectly as I'm supposed to. I say the things, I think the things that I'm supposed to, and it's all just exactly as it's supposed to be. Is that what walking in the light means? I sure hope not. I've never yet met a human being for whom it means that. There's never been one except one, and his name was Jesus. Which is why he says, he immediately says, if you think walking in the light means you have no sin, you're fresh out of luck. Notice what he says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, which is the opposite of being in the light. The deceived mind is the mind in the dark. If we say we have no sin, we've deceived ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But notice this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see in the light, in the light, and the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all sin? And then do you see confess our sins, and that means to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? What does it mean to walk in the light? It means to walk a life of confession. Confess your sins. That's what we gotta do. I want my sins covered. But a fig leaf won't cut it. I want my sins covered. How do I get them covered? I get them under the blood of Jesus. How do I get them under the blood of Jesus? I confess them. This is who I am. I'm no perfect man. I fail. And I wrestle in many ways. And you just confess it. You want a good, a good confession. Go confess your sins to God. Go before God. So we, bow, we bounce around in prayers. Oh, God, thank you for this day. We love you so much. And he knows exactly what's there. He knows exactly the things you're doing. Go to God and confess them outright, God, and name them. Name them specifically. These are specifically the things I've done. Don't put names on them that, that, that God wouldn't. Don't call it one thing. Don't say, God, I messed up. No, call it exactly what it is that you you did. Name it specifically. Go before God and read something like Psalm 38. Pray Psalm 38 in the presence of God. That's a psalm of confession. Psalm 38. Go pray it out loud to God. Confess it. God, this is who I am. This is what I did. You told me not to do this, and I did it anyways, and I feel the guilt of it, and I hate it, and I'm putting it in the light. Please cover it by the blood of Jesus so I can move forward. I hate it enough to deal with it and so I'm going to bury it. How do I bury it? I bury it by confessing it and then it will be covered under the blood of Jesus and I can move forward and so will God. Number three, sin needs to be drowned. I was thinking of my points this morning. You know, they're Hate it, bury it, drown it. Violent terms. And I, that's purposeful. Sin is not, it's not a game. It's not a trivial thing. I'm going to sit in eternity, and that's, that's what I think about. So deal with it as God has told you to deal with it. God hates it, so we hate it. Bury it, drown it. when I first became a christian, let me this is my favorite point of these three because this one is um, one of the ones I, I, really all of these actually helped me um, tremendously, but this one has helped me maybe more than any other, uh, just on the practical level. When I first became a Christian, I thought that uh, I thought that the only tool you re- that a Christian had at his disposal for dealing with sin was. Self control, and it would it was primarily came out in things like "don't do that," or "stop that," or "just be stronger." Those kinds of terms. I, I thought to, to live the Christian life and to do it effectively, you just kind of have to have this ultra self control, where you just restrict yourself from all this stuff all the time. And I I, I became a Christian at twelve. So, I know that I've not been a Christian for as long as uh, many in this room, but after 22 years, I've found that singular device to... to I've tried it, and I've found it wanting for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that mere... The self-control, first of all, in the spiritual sense, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 says so. It, it actually comes from the Holy Spirit. It's Self-control is not the same thing as self-will and self-determination. Self-determination, Paul says, produces asceticism. You can have a person who has a good self-determination, and they can quench certain things from their bodies, and they can do that. But Paul says, ultimately, it has no, it has no power in, affecting, uh, you know, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It produces asceticism, ultimately which is not the way of the Spirit. So self-control is a thing of the Holy Spirit. Self-control, as I knew it, was a thing of self-determination, and that ultimately made me make rules that God didn't make, and it did not get to the core of my man. And there's a deeper reason for this. Um, I would take, for example, you know what, before we go to that verse, take, for example, in a person who, just is a case study, a person who's struggling with alcohol. And let's say you tell that person you need to stop drinking. And you need to put the bottle aside and just stop it. You just need to be strong enough and you just stop it. Okay? You, you can get that guy, you can get, or that woman, you can get that person to stop it for a time. But you have to remember that the alcohol has has occupied a central place in that person's person. It's, it, it's bound, they're bound to it emotionally and psychologically and even uh, physiologically, and it has taken a place in their life. It's, it's there. So what is it, if you're just looking at the makeup of this person, just imagine this person, that you just take all the alcohol stuff and just put it over here. Now what is this, what's this person look like? There's a bunch of missing stuff, right? There's a void. There's a void. And when there's a void, Satan loves it. Voids are, are, we're not meant to be empty people. We're not meant to have holes. We are meant to be filled. And Jesus actually expressed this truth in Matthew chapter 12. Speaking of the spirit world, Jesus said, When the unclean spirit has gone out. So notice, this spirit left this guy. The unclean spirit has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places. By the way, just keep that in mind, as we're talking about drowning our sin. The unclean spirit has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says I will return to my house from which I came and when it comes it finds the house and by the way the house here That's that's referring to this guy That's where it lived it lived in that person When it comes it finds the house empty And swept and put in order why because it had gone out of him. This unclean spirit that caused all the chaos in this person's life, now it's gone, which by the way, spirit is a term we use for alcohol, and we use it that way for a reason. This goes back millennia, but it's gone out of the person, and he and he comes back, and now his, this, this guy's life is in order. There's He's, he's in his right mind, and his bed is made, and he's showered up, and look, he's, things are a little bit cleaner now because this thing was, was, that had been lulling him and dulling him is no longer there. So he comes back, and now he says, so then he says, but when he comes back and he finds an empty vessel, he says, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits. Just notice that seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of the person is worse than the first i used to think the way you deal with sin is just by grabbing sins out and setting them over here and just carry on my way that's not a good way there's a much better way if i give you a cup full of muddy water and i said to you remove all the mud Just reach in there with your fingers and pull out all the mud. And I want a clean cup of water. Could any of you do it? No, and you know what? Getting sin out of the core of a man is far harder than that. Far harder than that. There's a better way. What if I gave you a hose and I said I want that water to be clear? What could you do with the cup of muddy water? Just pour the cold water in it and keep pouring, and soon enough, what happened? As you pour in good, and you pour in good, and you drink in good, and you bring in good, and you bring in the Spirit of God and things of God and fellowship and the Bible, and you go to God and and you put in those things and you keep bringing in those things, the things inside that ought not be there are rooted out. The Spirit as he goes in cleanses the inner man. And this is exactly what Paul said and what he meant in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 when he said, Do not get drunk with wine. And by the way, this word here for drunk means to be filled. Don't be filled with wine. And you could you could replace You know, you could take this word here, wine, and you could replace anything you wanted. You could replace it with marijuana. You could replace it with pornography. You could replace it with gambling. You could replace it with a shopping addiction. You could replace it with any number, whatever the vice is, whatever the struggle is, put that in there. Paul says, don't get filled with that, but instead, be filled, be filled. Do you see the contrast with the Spirit? How do we get rid of the bad on the inside? Not by grabbing it out individually, but by filling ourselves up with the Spirit of God. And that's my challenge to you. How do you drown it? Bring in a lot of good. And keep bringing in good. If you're going to listen to the radio, listen to some kind of Christian radio. If you're going to be listening to something on the way to work, listen to scripture or listen to Zoe group or halal music or some kind of worship songs. Listen to a sermon. If you're going to have conversation at the table as a family, bring God into it. I said last week, how do you start your day? How do you finish your day? What do you fill your day with? Fill your life with the things of God Paul gives a number of them He gives a, Greek participles that, You know The command is Be filled with the Spirit He says addressing one another In Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs Singing, making melody to the Lord With your heart Giving thanks to God for everything Submitting to one another Out of reverence for Christ These are Paul's He said you can get filled with the Spirit this way But the idea is Fill your life with God and keep drinking him in. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. and then the lesson's yours. He says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. My question is, what are you drinking in? What are you drinking in? Are you drinking in the world? Are you if you're, if, you're just, if you're watching all the media that's out there and watching all the movies that are out there and not filtering it, and you're just listening to the music that's out there, what do you think's going in? What are you looking at? What are you listening to? What do you think that's doing on the inside? It changes you. And how do I get it out? By bringing in good stuff, not by pulling out the bad stuff. I really can't do that once it's in there. But God can. So, hate your sin... Bear your sin by confessing it and getting it under the blood of Jesus. And drown your sin by drinking in the Holy Spirit. And if you have any need at all, this church I know is a place that would love to help you. If you want to come to Christ and give Him your life, if you want to repent and confess your sins, or if you need the wisdom of the leaders, you can let it be known while we stand and sing.